We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart. Many times in my childhood we traveled so far by nightfall how weary I'd grow Father's arms would slip round me Gently he'd say, my child, we're 
praise God. I'm going home. Now the twilight is fading. The day soon shall end. I get homesick. The farther I roam, but the Father has led me each step of the way, and now I am going home, going home. I'm going home. There's nothing to Jerry, go. Josh, the battle. 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 Josh, the
Enjoying songs of praise. Here's some more inspirational music.
him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wandering eye at mystery so
hover over me, and I barely see the light. When I feel so down, it's hard to get back up. I just wanna see your face. When I'm on my own, feeling so. Just look up to heaven, and like flashes.
Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music. I'm sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despair and cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me, love lifted me. Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me All my heart to Him I give Ever to Him I'll cling In His blessed presence live Ever His praises sing Love so mighty and so true Marriage, my soul's best songs, faithful, loving service to to Him belongs. Love lifted me, love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me when. Nothing else could help Love lifted me Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help that old time religion give me that old time religion give me that old time religion and it's good enough for me it was good for paul and silas it was good for paul and silas it was good for paul and silas and it's good enough for me Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. And it's good enough for me. It was good for Prophet Daniel. It was good for Prophet Daniel. It was good for Prophet Daniel. And it's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. And it's good enough for me. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. And it's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. 
Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. And it's good enough for me. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. And it's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. And it's good. Good enough for me. It's good enough for me. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day Submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his. Lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. Savior all the day long. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. that 
Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase to add a His mercy to multiply trials, His multiplied peace. His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power has no Our store of endurance 
I heard he walked on water and opened blinded eyes. The deaf were made to hear again, and the dead were called to rise. Oh, but when I gave him all my heart, a greater thing took place. The Lord of every miracle redeemed me by His.
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter... First the blade, then the ear. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. 
When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 verse 12 Were all to profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Tears, based on Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and verses 37 to 43. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. The field, Christ said, is the world. But we must understand this as signifying the church of Christ in the world. The parable is a description of that which pertains to the kingdom of God, his work of salvation of men, and this work is accomplished through the church. True, the Holy Spirit has gone out into all the world. Everywhere it is moving upon the hearts of men. But it is in the church that we are to grow and ripen for the garner of God. He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The good seed represents those who are born of the word of God, the truth. The tares represent a class who are the fruit or embodiment of error, of false principles. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Neither God nor his angels ever sowed a seed that would produce a tear. The tares are always sown by Satan, the enemy of God and man. In the East, men sometimes took revenge upon an enemy by strewing his newly sown fields with the seeds of some noxious weed that, while growing, closely resembled wheat. Springing up with the wheat, it injured the crop and brought trouble and loss to the owner of the field. So it is from enmity to Christ that Satan scatters his evil seed among the good grain of the kingdom. The fruit of his sowing he attributes to the Son of God. By bringing into the church those who bear Christ's name while they deny his character, the wicked one causes that God shall be dishonored, the work of salvation misrepresented, and souls imperiled. Christ's servants are grieved as they see true and false believers mingled in the church. They long to do something to cleanse the church. Like the servants of the householder, they are ready to uproot the tares. But Christ says to them, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Christ has plainly taught that those who persist in open sin must be separated from the church, but he has not committed to us the work of judging character and motive. He knows our nature too well to entrust this work to us. Should we try to uproot from the church those whom we suppose to be spurious Christians, 
we should be sure to make mistakes. Often we regard as hopeless subjects the very ones whom Christ is drawing to himself. Were we to deal with these souls according to our imperfect judgment, it would perhaps extinguish their last hope. Many who think themselves Christians will at last be found wanting. Many will be in heaven who their neighbours supposed would never enter there. Man judges from appearance, but God judges the heart. The tares and the wheat are to grow together until the harvest, and the harvest is the end of probationary time. There is in the Saviour's words another lesson, a lesson of wonderful forbearance and tender love. As the tares have their roots closely intertwined with those of the good grain, so false brethren in the church may be closely linked with true disciples. The real character of these pretended believers is not fully manifested. Were they to be separated from the church, others might be caused to stumble, who but for this would have remained steadfast. The teaching of this parable is illustrated in God's own dealing with men and angels. Satan is a deceiver. When he sinned in heaven, even the loyal angels did not fully discern his character. This was why God did not at once destroy Satan. Had he done so, the holy angels would not have perceived the justice and love of God. A doubt of God's goodness would have been as evil seed that would yield the bitter fruit of sin and woe. Therefore the author of evil was spared fully to develop his character. Through long ages God has borne the anguish of beholding the work of evil. He has given the infinite gift of Calvary rather than leave any to be deceived by the misrepresentations of the wicked one. For the tares could not be plucked up without danger of uprooting the precious grain. And shall we not be as forbearing toward our fellow men as the Lord of heaven and earth is toward Satan? The world has no right to doubt the truth of Christianity because there are unworthy members in the church, nor should Christians become disheartened because of these false brethren. How was it with the early church? Ananias and Sapphira joined themselves to the disciples. Simon Magus was baptized. Demas, who forsook Paul, had been counted a believer. Judas Iscariot was numbered with the apostles. The Redeemer does not want to lose one soul. His experience with Judas is recorded to show his long patience with perverse human nature, and he bids us bear with it as he has borne. He has said that false brethren will be found in the church till the close of time. Notwithstanding Christ's warning, men have sought to uproot the tares. To punish those who were supposed to be evildoers, the churches had recourse to the civil power. Those who differed from the established doctrines have been imprisoned, put to torture and to death at the instigation of men who claimed to be acting under the sanction of Christ. But it is the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of Christ, that inspires such acts. This is Satan's own method of bringing the world under his dominion. God has been misrepresented through the church by this way of dealing with those supposed to be heretics. Not judgment and condemnation of others, but humility and distrust of self is the teaching of Christ's parable. Not all that is sown in the field is good grain. The fact that men are in the church does not prove them Christians. 
The tares closely resembled the wheat, while the blades were green. But when the field was white for harvest, the worthless weeds bore no likeness to the wheat that bowed under the weight of its full ripe heads. Sinners who make a pretension of piety mingle for a time with the true followers of Christ, and the semblance of Christianity is calculated to deceive many. But in the harvest of the world there will be no likeness between good and evil. Then those who have joined the church, but who have not joined Christ, will be manifest. The tares are permitted to grow among the wheat to have all the advantage of sun and shower. But in the time of harvest ye shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Malachi 3 verse 18 Christ himself will decide who are worthy to dwell with the family of heaven. He will judge every man according to his words and his works. Profession is as nothing in the scale. It is character that decides destiny. The Saviour does not point forward to a time when all the tares become wheat. The wheat and tares grow together until the harvest, the end of the world. Then the tares are bound in bundles to be burned, and the wheat is gathered into the garner of God. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Then the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Like a grain of mustard seed, this chapter is based on Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, Mark 4, verses 30 to 32, and Luke 13, verses 18 and 19. In the multitude that listened to Christ's teachings, there were many Pharisees. These noted contemptuously how few of his hearers acknowledged him as the Messiah. And they questioned with themselves how this unpretending teacher could exalt Israel to universal dominion. Without riches, power, or honor, how was he to establish the new kingdom? Christ read their thoughts and answered them, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? In earthly governments there was nothing that could serve for a similitude. No civil society could afford him a symbol. It is like a grain of mustard seed, he said, which when it is sown upon the earth, though it be less than all the seeds that are upon the earth, yet when it is sown, groweth up, and becometh greater than all the herbs, and putteth out great branches, so that the birds of the heaven can lodge under the shadow thereof. The germ in the seed grows by the unfolding of the life principle which God has implanted. Its development depends upon no human power. So it is with the kingdom of Christ. It is a new creation. Its principles of development are the opposite of those that rule the kingdoms of this world. Earthly governments prevail by physical force. They maintain their dominion by war. But the founder of the new kingdom is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit represents worldly kingdoms under the symbol of fierce beasts of prey. But Christ is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1 verse 29. In his plan of government, there is no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. 
The Jews looked for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way as the kingdoms of the world. To promote righteousness, they resorted to external measures. They devised methods and plans. But Christ implants a principle. By implanting truth and righteousness, he counterworks error and sin. As Jesus spoke this parable, the mustard plant could be seen far and near, lifting itself above the grass and grain and waving its branches lightly in the air. Birds flitted from twig to twig and sang amid the leafy foliage. Yet the seed from which sprang this giant plant was among the least of all seeds. At first it sent up a tender shoot, but it was of strong vitality and grew and flourished until it reached its present great size. So the kingdom of Christ in its beginning seemed humble and insignificant. Compared with earthly kingdoms, it appeared to be the least of all. By the rulers of this world, Christ's claim to be a king was ridiculed. Yet, in the mighty truths committed to his followers, the kingdom of the gospel possessed a divine life. And how rapid was its growth, how widespread its influence. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. Enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Port Gibson is a rural area just east of Rochester in New York State. It's a quiet area with many farms that dot the landscape. In the 1840s, there was a farm owned by Hiram Edson that housed some very important meetings and saw some key developments take place. Here, in the quietness of the countryside, let us take a walk down this particular part of Memory Lane. After the 22nd of October, 1844, the Advent believers were terribly disappointed as their hopes and dreams had been shattered and destroyed. Hiram Edson was no different. He was confused as he believed that his study of the prophecies had been accurate yet Jesus hadn't come. How would they reconcile this? Did they have the date wrong as some had suggested? He didn't think so. The dates and calculations had been solid. Did they have the event wrong? Well, they must have because Jesus hadn't come. But what else could it mean? Edson was walking through a cornfield one day soon after when he realized they had gotten something major wrong. They had been so focused on the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 as it seemed to match the events of 1844 that they had missed Christ's other wedding parable in Luke chapter 12. In Luke it says that we must wait while we wait for the Lord to return from the wedding. He also realized that in Daniel 7, it says that the Son of Man would come to the Ancient of Days rather than to the earth. 
This was a revelation. Later, he would study this out with Dr. Franklin B. Hahn and O.R.L. Crozier, and they would solidify their views on this matter. They saw that Jesus was not scheduled to come to the earth at the end of the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8:14, but rather he transitioned from the holy place to the most holy place in the sanctuary in heaven, beginning the work of the investigative judgment. It was Owen Russell Loomis Crozier who wrote the first issue of The Day Dawn in March of 1845 that explained the reason for the delay in Jesus' return and preserved the historicist framework of Daniel 8 and 9. Hiram Edson's barn is also the place that Captain Joseph Bates shared the truth of the Sabbath in late 1846. As he was reading his tract, Edson jumped up and said, Brother Bates, this is light and truth. The seventh day is a Sabbath, and I am with you to keep it. Crozier and Hahn also accepted the Sabbath, and thus this linked those in Western New York who were presenting the sanctuary with those in New England who were teaching the Sabbath. For this reason, this farm has been seen as the theological birthplace of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for it's where the two pillars of the Sabbath and the sanctuary came together. The blending of these two teachings would form the uniqueness of this new movement. The Sabbath was not just seen as a reminder of creation or as part of the Ten Commandments, but rather in the light of the sanctuary and its eschatological or end-time context. In time, Hiram Edson and the other Advent believers would see that their experience in October 1844 was part of Bible prophecy and that their very disappointment itself was further proof that God was leading them. In Revelation 10, it points out that their experience would first be sweet in the mouth and then it would be bitter in the belly. And oh, how bitter it had been. The last verse in Revelation 10 admonished them and it echoes to us today, thou must prophesy again. May we take the admonition of the preaching of the unique message of God to heart and go wherever he calls. To view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.